Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 172 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we are at the end of 2017 almost, and thanks for hanging in there. This has been an incredible year. We had so much to celebrate, and there's, man, where do you think we should start? How about how about this? How about we start off 2018 with Craig Grishel? I have almost 90 minutes with Craig, and we just have the most fascinating conversation. And uh, that's going to be next week. And we're going to wrap up this year with a really fascinating conversation. One of the things you keep telling me is you love how eclectic this podcast is. And I met a couple of guys earlier this year who are really interested in, of all things, the Jewishness of Jesus. Like, let's be honest, sometimes we treat Jesus like he is some suburban hero, when in reality, he was a rabbi who taught in the first century. Now, there's a guy in Nashville, Tennessee named Robbie Gallaty, who just wrote a book on the Jewishness of Jesus, and so has Rabbi Evan Moffick of New York City. And I talked to both of them in this mashup of a, of a podcast where I had two separate interviews, and we bring you the best of both uh, for this final episode of 2017. But I got to tell you before we get to that, we are super excited because guess what? Today is the day that the High Impact Leader course is open, and it is the time for you to get your life and your leadership back. A lot of you have been waiting for the High Impact Leader. Over 2,500, maybe as many as 3,000 people have been through the course already. And you know what they're discovering? They're discovering that it's possible to actually function at your best at work, have life and energy left over for your family, and the secret is to do what you're best at when you're at your best. And you know what? That's not easy for, um, for a lot of people. And I lived without that for a long time. So here's the backstory to the High Impact Leader. In my 30s, I worked really, really hard, had a fast-growing church like a lot of you do. And frankly, I burned out when I hit 40. And it was a really, really difficult time in my life. And I knew when I was rebuilding out of burnout that I could not go back to normal because normal had gotten me to burnout. So I clearly had to have different patterns. So I hired coaches, I went to counselors, I got people to speak into my life, and I built a new pattern that actually made me a lot more productive than I ever was when I was working more hours. Um, to the point where I had wanted to publish a book all through my 30s, never did. Published three in my 40s. I also launched this leadership podcast. I also started blogging three times a week, speaking regularly, and led our church to the, well, the largest it had ever been. And actually, my marriage got better. And eventually, people started asking me, Carrie, how are you doing it all? And so last year, I wrote it all down and turned the principles into a course. The, the point is, not that you should have my patterns or rhythms, but when you discover these principles, uh, you can operate at your highest level of capacity, really, that you, you can become a high-impact leader. And um, well, uh, don't take it from me. I actually uh, had the opportunity to spend some time with Jeff Henderson and his team. He's the lead pastor of Gwinnett Church. And uh, well, here's a little bit about what the High Impact Leader did for Jeff and his team. Listen in to my short conversation with him. Well, Jeff, you ran your whole team at uh, Gwinnett Church through the High Impact Leader. What difference did that make for you guys? 
two big differences, Carrie. There was a collective difference and then individual differences. We had you come to our retreat and you spoke, and then we purchased it and gave it to every single person. But we asked them to meet individually and then also as teams. And then we actually really uh, asked the question, hey, what are you good at, but where are you at your best? And figure those two things out. And it really helped us change our approach to our calendars. I know it did that for me, that I began to discover I'm really good at this particular hours of the day, so don't give those hours up so freely. Yeah, that's interesting to me because... You know, I've always respected you as a leader. It's not like, you know, you're 22 and just starting out. And yet you learn some things about yourself in the process of applying the principles of the high impact leaders. So what is the biggest difference it made for you as, you know, the leader of a very large church? I discovered that my most creative moments came in the morning shortly after a workout. Hmm. And if I was going to a workout and then going home and racing home and then going to a meeting. And then my mornings were full of meetings. If I did that throughout the week, then I was giving up some of my most creative moments. Now that's in a perfect world. I do have morning meetings, but what I began to do is to say, where are there days that I could shift and switch maybe the morning to the afternoons. And so we practically speaking, I freed up Thursday mornings for me. I have Monday mornings free as well. But morning, mor- Thursday mornings were a shift for me because of High Impact Leader. And I've seen a huge change and a huge benefit in just that one. And there are other changes, but in just that one change, it was huge. Right. So that allowed you really what the course is about, doing your best at when you're at your best. But it made a difference for your team too, right? Didn't you shift a couple of team meetings around? Because I know a lot of leaders struggle with uh, like team engagement and boredom from their team. So how did that impact the the culture at Gwinnett Church? We did two things. And again, this is just us, but we we shifted our leadership meetings to every other week. But then I actually had some Thursday afternoon times and I just have slots of 30 minutes in the afternoon and people can sign up for them versus just having it, your meeting with Jeff every week for an hour on Thursday morning and I just rethought that and said, hold on, wait a, wait a minute. Don't give up those times when you're at your best creatively. And then I shifted it to have blocks in Thursday afternoon. So if you looked at my schedule, you would see these 30-minute blocks that people sign up for. And it's really made a huge difference both for, for them and I think for, for me because it's allowed me to be better in those afternoon times because I'm not panicking or, 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 or worrying what I, what could I have gotten done in that morning? And that's just, that's just one practical way that it's, 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 it's shifted for me. I appreciate that, Jeff. Thanks so much for sharing that with our leaders. Hey, thank you, Carrie. So we now on this release of the high impact leader have a five pack and a 10 pack. If you want to do this with your team, you can do it as an individual or with your team. You can find everything. It's open today at thehighimpactleader.com. We have some bonuses for you that are going to be really exciting as well. So make sure you visit thehighimpactleader.com. It is only open for a few days and then we're going to close it down again. So don't miss out thehighimpactleader.com. Also, speaking of the end of the year, do you know the very special offer that our good friends at Lifeway Leadership is coming to an end this week? You will want to head over to lifeway.com slash ministry grid to get started. Ministry Grid is a way that you can train your team online. Last year, 400,000 leaders went through it. And if you act before December 31st, you can get first-time guest team training 
absolutely free. So just go to lifeway.com slash ministry grid and uh, do it before December 31st and you'll get the free bonus there. Well, how about we jump into the interview? Uh, here is my conversation, separate conversations, with Robbie Gallaty and with Rabbi Evan Moffick. Robbie, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Robbie, uh, you were telling me before we got started, uh, I wanted to interview you on your latest book, The Forgotten Jesus, and you've got 10 of them now, which is incredible. And uh, uh, you have an interesting story as how you came to faith. So tell, tell us about that, because it's been quite a road for you. Yeah, it's it's been quite a journey. So I was actually raised uh, in a Roman Catholic home, very religious family, New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, went to church every Sunday. If we missed church on Sunday, went to confession on Saturday, and uh, lived like I wanted uh, all week. Hmm. And uh, I knew who Jesus was, Carrie, but I didn't have a relationship with him. Uh, I got a scholarship to play basketball at a at a college in North Carolina, and a girl I was dating at the time literally throws a fit. She's going to LSU. She's like, there's no way you can go that far away. You have to stay close to home. Yeah. And so I took the phone book. This is a crazy story. I took the phone book and I opened it up and I found this college called William Carey College. <laughs> now, you know William Carey, the missionary, but I'm sure you've never heard of the college. No. You know what? I pa- Where is that? I think I passed it the other day. Is that Mississippi? That's in Mississippi. Oh, come on. <laughs> I drove by it. I drove by it the other day. And my last name is Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y. So it always sticks out to me. You're kidding me. Yeah. Because I saw the signs. I was coming back from Hattiesburg to Golfport at like 4 a.m. Am I in the right ballpark there? That's right. You're right. Okay. So, but at the time, I did not know the school, right? So I called the coach up and I'm like, coach, can I try her for the team? And he's like, man, you're crazy. It's like two weeks before the school starts. And uh, he hesitantly let me go. And man, that day, it was the providence of God. I made every shot. I had Michael Jordan-like reflexes. My mom <laughs> told me after, she said, son, I have to be honest with you. I've never seen you play good. She told me this years later. I've never seen you play that good before that day. And frankly, Robbie, you haven't played that good since that day. But on that day, right? <laughs> so that's providence. <laughs> oh, man, that's providence. So the coach gives me a full ride to come play basketball. And two weeks into the school semester, the girl I'm dating at the time thinks I'm cheating on her, which I wasn't, but she thinks I am, and she breaks up with me. And I'm stuck now as a Roman Catholic on the campus of a Southern Baptist school, okay? (laughs) Now, I don't know if you know what that means, but man, I am the target of every evangelism class on campus. You are the subject of many prayers. Oh man, they they prayed for me. And, And so 1995, I'm a sophomore in college, a guy, I think he's the only guy brave enough at the time. He's about 6'5", I'm 6'6", and I felt like he he just had enough courage. He came up and he said, man, listen, I know you don't want Jesus, but if you ever feel like you're in a bind, everyone's turned their back on you, you can repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. Hmm. Well, I wouldn't have a conversion experience then, but I would remember that seven years later. Wow. I got out of college. Uh, I started working as uh, uh, in a computer company. It went belly up, and I decided I didn't want to do anything in the world as far as uh, business-wise, and so I started to train Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now, are you familiar <laughs> with this UFC kind of no-holes-barred fighting? Uh-huh. Okay, so, th- so I'm aspiring to be in the UFC, and uh, a guy sees me out one night. He's like, man, would you be the, be interested in being a bouncer at my club, downtown New Orleans, in the middle of Mardi Gras? I'm like, let me get this straight. You're going to pay me to fight, right? I'm in. So yeah, it seems yeah. like a good business. And tell, tell them how tall you are, too. You're, you're not a yeah. small guy. 
Yeah, back then I was I was uh, 290 pounds, six six. Now I'm still six six, obviously, but uh, about 260. But back then, man, Gosh. I was fighting and, and and training, and so I did that for a season. Guy pulls a gun on me walking to the parking lot. I thought, you know what? I need a career change. I make a lateral move from bouncing to bartending, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm working in the club. Coming home from work one day, November, and this is where my whole life changed. November 22nd, 1999. 18-wheeler comes across two lanes of traffic, sandwiches my car into the guardrail, 65 miles an hour. My seat breaks off the hinges and my seatbelt locks. My back torques, I go to the hospital and they say, it's amazing you made it out alive. You could have been hurt worse. We're going to send you home with four things. I'm 22 years old, never taken drugs before. Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. Whoa. And you know the story. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm legitimately in pain, but I'm taking the drugs as prescribed. And now I have this insatiable desire to get high. I don't want to make money. I don't want to be successful. And I'm running through a 30-day prescription in two weeks. Man. I have some friends in the city, so-called friends. They're like, man, why are you fooling with pharmaceutical drugs? You can buy street drugs. You can buy heroin and cocaine. You can buy it in bulk. You can sell it, make money. So here I was, 22 years old. 1999, I took the business knowledge from the world, brought it into the drug world. And for the next three years, I had an illegal import business. And and I have to be honest, by the world standards, times were really good in the beginning. I mean, we had tons of money. We traveled where we wanted. We did what we wanted. But even back then, I still, in the quietness of my own heart, I thought there has to be more to life than this. Man. I robbed my own father for $15,000. I went to two rehab treatments. Long story short, I'm in my room. I'm not in church service. I'm not in a revival service. I'm in my room, November 12, 2002. And here's what I just tell people. Two things happened during that time. And this is just good for people who are listening because my parents kicked me out the house for a season. My mom exercised tough love. When she found out I stole from them, she's like, don't come back to the house. We don't want you to come here again. I said, mom, I don't need you anyway. But it was those three months, Carrie, of just tough love of, of really living without gas, electricity and water. I had $180 a day heroin and cocaine addiction at the height of it. But here's what I tell people, and this is good just for listeners to think about. Whenever there's a perpetual drug addiction, and we all know people like this, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or abuse of any kind, there's normally an enabler in the life of the person. Mm. And what I tell people is this. If you keep being their savior, Jesus never can be. I mean, think about that. That's so good. Think about that, because what happens is, We want to help people. And that's why it's called tough love, because it's tough. But if you back away and you say, God, I'm turning them over to you. And listen, I got so low, I had to turn to the Lord. And so there I was in my room. And I remembered the seeds that Jeremy sowed in my life seven years before. And so just another encouragement to those who think, you know what? I'm sowing seeds. I'm sharing the gospel. Is it really working? I mean, I'm the last guy you would ever think to come to faith in Christ. And yet God took my life of brokenness. He took my life, which is an absolute mess. And now he's given me over the past 15 years, this amazing message about how he's changed my life. And so I had this 24 hour radical Paul-like conversion. I mean, Carrie, I knew I knew I, I was, I was saved. And not only did I know I was a born again believer, I felt called to ministry, but I didn't know how to do any, I didn't know how to. Okay. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. How did that happen? Cause I've got a very good friend of mine, Justin Piercy. Uh, who's on our church staff, he had a very similar thing at the bottom, um, almost suicidal, desperate drug addiction, meets Jesus in a hospital room. Is that what happened to you? 
supernaturally, no human intervention. So, yeah, see, see, this is what everybody wants to know, that part of the story, right? So basically what happened is I'm in my room and I realized for the first time who I was as a sinner. And I realized I needed to be saved. And I'm just going to say, and I don't talk about this much, but I will just say it was so radical. Here, here's, here's a neat, neat insight here. I don't share this much, but yeah. after I met Jesus, I didn't sleep for 21 days. No way. Okay. Listen, and I went to a psych. I went to a psych. I, c- I couldn't sleep. I, c- I just kept thinking about the day I met Christ. I went to psychologists and I went to a psychiatrist and I'm like, hey, listen, and I talked to pastors and I talked to teachers and I, I'm, I'm like, what just happened to me? Because something happened to me. I'm a, I went from the pit of hell and now I'm a Christian. And, and, and the last guy I went to was just a psychiatrist. He said, listen, if you don't sleep, you're going to die. You have to yeah. sleep. He said, I don't Now He's an unbeliever. Here's what he said. He said, I don't know who this Jesus is, but you don't have to figure out what happened and how it happened. You just need to accept that it happened and move on. And Carrie, that was it. I went home. And from that day on, I just, I just said, Hey, I'm just going to serve the Lord. So I go to this church, Edgewater Baptist church. All right. Yeah. I mean, think, of the, think of God here. I'm at Edgewater Baptist church. Dr. Jim Shaddix is the pastor. And this man by the name of David Platt is a church member. Okay. Wow. Now this is prior to radical prior to the international mission board. And David comes one Sunday and he's like, Hey man, would you want to meet once a week to study the Bible, memorize scripture and pray? I said, David, I'd love to. He said, pray about it. I said, when do we meet? I said, I, I said I'm ready to go. And he said, uh, he said, let's meet once a week. We'll study the Bible, memorize the word and pray. And Carrie, for the next two years, mm-hmm. David invested his life in mine. Uh, he taught me how to read the Bible. He gave me a passion for expository preaching. He gave me a heart for the nations. He took me on my first mission trip. He baptized me. So I say that all that to say that I'm the product of discipleship. Mm-hmm. That's, that's unbelievable. I mean, what a, what an incredible story. And so you received a call to ministry. You've gone into ministry and tell us about the church where you're serving right now, Robbie. Yeah. I mean, I'm at an amazing church. Uh, we're right outside of Nashville, Tennessee, a city called Hendersonville. Uh, we have two campuses, uh, on kind of the east side or the west side and the east side of the community. And I'm just following an amazing pastor, the Pastor here before me was a guy named David Lander. Uh, he was here for 18 years. The church grew basically from about 200 to almost 7,000. I mean, just That's God. Crazy. And, and listen, I, people have asked me, what was the secret to the growth here of Long Howe? And Pastor David used to say, it's God. He used to yell, it's God. And I tell people, he was telling the truth. I mean, <laughs> God, just, God just rested upon our church and just people came and he was an amazing leader and there was an amazing staff in the past. And I just have the privilege of following him. He passed away from cancer. Mm-hmm. He got cancer, got sick and 15 months, just kind of battled that. And so I get to follow the, just, just this amazing man, this amazing uh, church. And, and I've been here for two years and I'm just trying to figure out what I'm doing. I'm just be honest with you, I'm still learning and growing. And uh, it's just been a great ride though. So that sits us uh, right in the middle of something fascinating. You're in uh, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. You're serving, um, you know, in a church that's an awful lot like a lot of listeners. They're either leading that church or they're uh, part of that church. And your latest book, The Forgotten Jesus, is talking to all of us kind of suburban Christians about losing the Jewishness of Jesus and how we're really impoverished without 
knowing anything about that. How did you get interested in that subject? Because that's not your background. That's not your context. I mean, you don't, yeah. Where, how, how did, how did that show up on your radar? Oh man. You know, people ask me, how does a guy born, uh, in South Louisiana, New Orleans, uh, who was raised Catholic, who's now Southern Baptist, who's not Jewish. How does he get caught up in this? So I started reading the Bible, uh, as a new believer. And you got to understand I'm coming to the Bible with really no presuppositions. Yeah, I was raised Catholic, but I didn't pay attention. I didn't listen. Yeah. I mean, I, I was I was nominally a nominal Catholic, right? So I come just with this fresh, open, uh, just honest transparency of just trying to receive as a sponge the word. And I start realizing Jesus is not, as I've seen portrayed, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed American surfer dude, right? Yeah. Who's depicted with this long, flowing hair in these movies. I mean, he is a Middle Eastern, dark-skinned, black-haired rabbi, right? I mean, right. that's probably what he was. So I get Good caught chance. up in, yeah, yeah. So I get caught up in, in, in kind of hearing about this movement of restoring the Jewishness of Jesus, the Hebraic roots of Jesus, and so. Uh, I go to this conference for a guy named Dr. Dwight Pryor. He has he has since passed away to be with the Lord, and he has given his life to the Jewishness of Jesus. And so he has this conference on Paul the Apostle and Jesus the Rabbi. Are they connected or are they apart? Very interesting concept. So I go to this retreat center. It's a three-day retreat, and my roommate, Carrie, is a Jewish Messianic rabbi. Okay. It was great for me. Okay, listen, it was great for me. It was horrible for this guy <laughs> because I had hit the spiritual jackpot, right? So I kept yeah. this poor guy up every night, man. I'm I'm just asking him question after question. But here's what changed it for me. We go into one of the sessions and uh, Dr. Pryor says, hey, does anyone know why Jesus, when he walked on water, passed the disciples by? The text says he meant to pass them by. He said, oh, yeah, that's a direct connection to Moses when God passed Moses by in the rock, and then Elijah when God passed Elijah by in first oh, came. Oh, yeah. Thought, oh, yeah. Right. Like, why? Okay. I'm like, why is that? I don't know that. I never heard that before. He's like, when Jesus took the cup at the Last Supper, do you know what that is? The guy's like, yes, that is the cup of redemption, which is part of the Passover, which is talked about in Leviticus. So I'm like, wait a minute. I've never even heard this before. So we go back to the room. I'm like, brother, where do you know this from? And here's what he said. He said, the problem, and here's what he said very, very politely, that the problem yeah. with you Western American Christians is that you only read one third of the Bible. Hmm. I said, really? He said, the reason you don't, and here's what he said, and I've never forgotten this. You, the reason you don't appreciate the New Testament is because, frankly, you don't know the Old Testament. He said, wow. he said if you had a, a way to connect the old and new, where the new would be the top layer and the old would be underneath. He said, literally, you would have connection after connection after connection from the old to the new. And he said, he said, I'll prove it to you. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'll prove it to you. He said, how do you share the gospel with a lost person? I said, well, that's easy. I said, you go to the Roman road, right? Mm -hmm. All ascend and fall and show the glory of God. No one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus will raise from the dead. You will be saved, right? He said, that's great. He said, that's a Western way to do it. I said, well, what do you mean? I said, where do you start? He said, I use the Bible Jesus used. <laughs> he said, okay. I use the Old Testament, okay, which was the only Testament. And he said, I start with Genesis. He said, I start with a good God who created a world good. 
I talked about how he made man in his own image. I talk about how sin marred man and it was judgment ultimately, not only for him and his family, how God made a promise with Abraham, how he foretold that promise and how he came through with the promise and the sending of his son, Jesus. He said, the problem is you don't understand the old, so you can't really appreciate the new. Well, that was, that was a decade ago. Yeah. And I've been on this journey to try to recover and rediscover the Jewish system. Jesus, because here's the reality. Most people listening to this podcast are Western Americans or yep. Westerners or Western Canadians who have been influenced by Romanism and Hellenism, which is Roman and Greek. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now we're not Easterners in an Eastern culture. So people are naturally saying, well, we'll, we'll prove it to me. Okay. Here's yeah. what I want you to do for those listening. Here's a great example. I want you to think about this. If I were to ask you a question, I mean, you can answer it too. If I were to ask you this question, you fill in this blank. God is one word. Just give me one word. God is love. One. Love is the first thing that comes love. to mind. Love, exactly. God is holy. God is righteous, right? God is, now if you want to impress your friends, omnipotent. Right. Yeah, um, sure. Um, That's a lot of syllables, man. Robbie, you're you're yeah, call me out you're here, just man. <laughs> you're just sales smart. Now, here's the thing: if you close your eyes, if you're driving, don't do this. But close your eyes, and if I say the words to you, God is. Think about it: love, righteous. God is omnipotent. Now, open your eyes for a second. If you're like me, you're thinking and seeing the words. I mean, I'm picturing in my mind omnipotent, the word, omnipresent, the word, omniscient, the word. Yeah. That's a Western way. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, that's just, yeah. That's kind of a Western approach. The Jewish language, the Hebrew language is a motive. They don't think like we do in bullet points, get this, and outlines. They don't think in theological treatises. Yeah. The Please Jewish don't read my blog. Think- I'm full of bullet points and <laughs> outlines. Yeah. I'm like, but you know what I'm talking about. Well, I know I'm exactly what you're talking about. Yep. And I wrote a book this way because I'm writing to a Western audience. But here's the deal. When Jesus, when, well, think about this. When God wanted to communicate who he was, he didn't send an owner's manual or, or how-to manual. He came right. in the form of a man. And he said, here's a picture to emulate. So here's the point. Jewish people don't think in bullet points and outlines. They think in pictures. Hmm. Now, you go to Israel right now. I have the privilege of going next week, about two weeks from now, I'm going to Israel uh, again. And here's the thing. If you ask a young student or a student studying in the, in the yeshiva, which is the university, and you say, define this uh, word or, or, or give me one word to define God. God is blank. Guess what they say? I would have no idea. God is a rock. Hmm. God is running water. God is an eagle's wing. My favorite is God is bread. Mm-hmm. Now, if you close your eyes again, watch this. Those who haven't closed them already. But if you close your eyes and I say God is running water mm-hmm. or God is an eagle's wing. And here's my favorite. God is fresh baked bread. Mm-hmm. Open your eyes. If you linger long enough, you can almost smell the bread. Yeah. Who talked that way? Yeah. Jesus. Jesus. I mean, think about it. And, and listen, let's let's call it for what it is. Some of us gravitate to Paul because he's easier to understand with his Hellenistic mind than the stories or the parables of Jesus. Exactly, exactly. But we would all say the greatest teacher who ever walked the face of the earth is Jesus. Is Jesus, absolutely. And he is the Lord and our Savior, the whole deal. 
Okay, so here's the deal. When Jesus talked that way, I mean, that's just the way he talked. I mean, think about it. He said, the kingdom of God is like a man who bought a field. The kingdom is like a sea, a sower sowing seed. Jesus said, the, 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 you know, I'm like a door. I'm a shepherd. You're sheep. I'm a pathway. Uh, Jesus said, uh, I, I'm building a place in heaven. So he's talking to us pictorially. So here's the point, and I make this case all throughout the book. I'm trying to apply that hermeneutic, that way of understanding the scriptures, particularly the gospels. If you apply it that way, here's what I tell people. You don't need to know the Jewishness of Jesus to read the Bible as a Christian. We know that from the Reformation and the priesthood of all believers, any born-again believer filled with the Spirit of God, wielding the Word of God, can understand it through the Spirit's discernment. We get that. Mm -hmm. But understand the Eastern culture and the Jewishness of Jesus, and I'm trying to teach you how to think like Jesus in this book. Passages that were otherwise read in black and white— will move to what I think a high-definition technicolor. Yeah. And it's seeing these same passages a different way, and man, it just brings you into, a, I feel, a deeper relationship with the Lord Jesus. Yeah, walk us through a few of your favorite examples, because the book is littered with, not littered, but you know, full of examples of, of that kind of interpretation. So what are a couple that really would orient people around what you're saying? Yeah, let me give you my two favorites, okay? Sure. And, and, there's, and there's a few of them in here, but let me give my two favorites. My favorite one, and this is the one, I'm just going to prep you, okay? You yeah. may not agree with me, but don't send me any emails, okay? <laughs> okay yeah. We don't know for certain, but you can piece together Jesus's culture. I don't think Jesus was a carpenter who worked with wood. Okay. I think Jesus was a stonemason who worked with stones. Now, why do I get that? If you study the New Testament in Matthew chapter 13, it says he goes to his hometown in verse 55 and it says, isn't this, remember this? They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Yes. Now that word carpenter is the Greek word tekton. Tekton is the word that can mean craftsman, right? Mm -hmm. But it also is somebody who works with their hands. It's a skilled worker. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you realize that 99% of the homes are not built with wood like America. Yeah. They're, think about this. They're built out of stone. Built out of stone. Okay. Now, you, you would say, well, you know, what, what else? I'm not convinced. Well, if you study geographically where Jesus was raised, between the city of Nazareth, which is in the top western part of Galilee, there was a city called Sepphoris or Zippori in the Old Testament. This was a bustling Greek city that the Romans were kind of building, and they had, they had stone walkways, and they had stone amphitheaters, and they had stone marketplaces. Between Nazareth and Zippori, which they enlisted every abled working man in the region the entire time Jesus was raised and born and reared to work on this city. Now, between Nazareth and Zippori was the largest stone quarry in the whole land. Hmm. So you have to believe whether Jesus, Jesus could have built tables. I get that. Jesus could have built wooden door frames. I get that. But it's more likely that he worked with stone. Now think about this. What does that have to do with the Bible? Let's take that understanding to familiar passages, such as Matthew 16. Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and they're surrounded by all these false gods. And he says, who do you say that I am? And they say, well, some say the Messiah, uh, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you know, he gets it right. 
Peter's like me. He's like you. You know, at times he has a foot shaped mouth. Yeah, he doesn't get it that often. But on this occasion, Pete gets it. He right. gets it he right. Up, he gets it right. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. What does Jesus say? Upon this wood. Right. Uh, upon the upon stone. This, this rock, Upon this stone, I will build my church. When in the book of uh, Luke, uh, Jesus is telling them, uh, don't you know what is written? The stone the builders rejected mm-hmm. has become the cornerstone. When Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't build your house on the sand. Build it on the rock. I mean, these are images Jesus would have known. And in Peter, it says, Peter, Peter talking about the church, he says, Jesus is the cornerstone. And we are like little stones being formed into the church. That's just mm-hmm. one instance of, of a more Hebraic understanding of the culture. Let me give you one more. My favorite, and I alluded to it earlier, my favorite is the one when Jesus walks by the disciples. Man, I love this one. Uh, I, I just think it's so interesting because I've read that passage for so long, Carrie, and I thought, why is Jesus walking by them? Mm-hmm. Like, why is he, it says he meant to pass them by. And you can study sermons and commentaries, and some people say, well, he passed them by to see if they really wanted it. Like they really wanted you know, Jesus. You know, you know, Jesus, the trickster, right? Just walking, playing games. One guy even said he thought Jesus was trying to play a joke and scare them. Yeah, so, you know, Jesus. Uh, yeah, Jesus in a Halloween costume. You know, no, that's not what he's doing. Uh, some even said Jesus wanted to have them call out to him just to see if they would call to him. And maybe, but here's what I think: if you study the Old Testament enough, you realize that there are two times in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, where it says God himself meant to pass them by, okay? And I said it earlier. The first is when Moses says to God, I wanna see your glory. I think it's Exodus 34. God, I wanna see your glory. Hmm. And God says, no man can see my face and live, but I'll show you my backside. Remember this? Yeah, yeah. Puts him in the, the rock. Go back and study it. The text says he meant to pass them by, or God passed them by, passed him by, and he saw the glory of God. Yeah. And Elijah, watch this, Elijah, same thing. God, I want to see you. God, it says, God comes by. He's not in the fire. He's not in the wind. He's not in the earthquake. He's in the small, still voice, or the small voice, and he passes him by. So when an Easterner, uh, the, the Jewish men who are in that boat, when they see who they believe, they just they just understood to be the Messiah. When they see that Jesus meant to pass them by, I believe their minds immediately think, watch this, there's only one we know of in the Bible who passes people by. Yeah. And people always say, Jesus never said he was the Messiah. He never said he was God. And I say, he did it all the time. Mm-hmm. He just didn't do it as an American pastor or a Christian. He did it as an Eastern rabbi. I think what Jesus is saying, get this, without saying anything to the disciples, is you guys know there's only one who passes by, and it's God, and I'm God. Now, is it any wonder when he gets in the boat, they say, who is this man that the wind and the waves even obey? Remember when when he walks on the water and he comes in and they say, who is this man? And the answer is, the, the question is the answer. Because they know that the only one who the wind and the waves obey, the only one who passes by is God. And so Jesus is saying without saying, I'm God. And so, you know, people are walking away from faith or they're they're wondering, well, where would this whole Jesus thing? But it's the same thing, you know, when he says, I am the way, I mean, you 
trace that back to Exodus 3, right? And God's self-revelation as Yahweh, the I am. And all of a sudden, the scripture pops to life. So, you know, this is interesting because you you preach in a context, and I want to insult anybody, but, you know, I'm an hour north of Toronto, and, you know, here we are as, and 85% of listeners of this podcast are exactly what you describe, Western American Christians. I mean, it's a mostly U.S.-based audience. Canada's not that different. And often we're like, God, just help me find my car keys, right? Like that's that's our definition of God. So if we have a God, help me find my car keys, please make this cancer go away. I'm praying for X, Y, Z. How does that apply? Like how is your research and what you're tapping into, how does that change, augment, or challenge the faith of a suburban or urban Christian? Yeah, because people, this is the great question, because people say, what is the point of studying this? I mean, is it yeah. just to have a bunch of facts? It's a big I mean, so what? It, well, great, yeah. Robbie. I, I'm real happy for you. I love that this is your hobby. But like, what difference does it make to me? I, I got to cook dinner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, this has nothing to do with my life. I mean, it's a bunch of stories I could tell my friends that are cool uh, at a Christian fellowship gathering. But this has nothing to do with my life. Here's what I tell people. And this is a wonderful picture in the Bible. We see this all throughout the Old, but particularly the New Testament. Well, here's what Jesus said. And it's a triangle. I draw it on a board this way. At the top of the triangle, the apex is knowing God. Right. And so the more you know God, Jesus said, the more you know me, the more you love me. Right. So the more you know, the more you're going to love him. And then the more you love Jesus, which is the bottom of the triangle, you move over to the other side, the more you're going to obey him. Jesus said, those who love me, obey me. And then here's the cool thing. When you obey the Lord, First John tells us this. He begins to manifest more of himself to you. Why? Because he can trust you. So here's the triangle. The more you know him up top, the more you love him. And the more you love him, the more you obey. Not out of duty, not begrudgingly you obey him. You obey him not because you want to earn salvation. You obey him because you already have salvation. I tell people, what can you do and give in exchange for salvation? Right? Right. So, but the more you obey him, here's what God does. He begins to manifest himself more to you, and it's this loving process that's reciprocal. Here's an example. When I met Candy, my wife, we uh, I, I met Candy. It was a blind preaching day, Carrie. So she came and heard me preach. Yeah, best sermon I've ever preached to date, right? now. It's just like your whole basketball thing. Best you've ever done, never been as good since then. Yeah, I get that. I get that, Robbie. I am a one-and-done kind of machine. That's a one-and-done. Okay, so Candy comes. We date for five months. I propose to her. We get married in 10. Okay? okay. Kind of a quick deal. But here's the deal. When I married Candy that day, if you would have asked me on that day, the wedding day, Robbie, do you think you could ever love this woman any more than you love her now? I would have said no. Same thing you would say. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could love my wife more. I mean, this is the zenith of love, all right, on the wedding day. But I've been married 13 years to Candy. We have two children together. We've lost everything in Hurricane Katrina together. We've been able to pastor two or three contexts. I mean, we've been in in environments together and through life challenges. I love Candy more today than I ever even thought I could love her back then. And here's why. I love her more today because I know more about her. Yeah. The more I know about her, the more I love her. And and that's the beautiful thing about a long-term marriage. You just start learning and uncovering things about your spouse you never knew, and you grow in love. You, you don't fall in love. I tell people, you fall in love, you fall out of love. Yeah. You grow in love, right? So here's what I tell people. The more you know about Jesus, and the more you spend time understanding Jesus, you can't help but fall in love with him. And the natural response of love is obedience. 
And the more you obey the Lord through through submitting to him and surrendering to him, the more he begins to surrender or manifest himself to you. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, I've been married for uh, 27 years to my wife, and I'm still learning things about her, and I love it. And I think, you know, to that point, I run into so many people, I'm sure this is true at your church, who are just like, I don't feel connected to God. I just, you know, I read my Bible, it seems empty, he feels like a mystery. And it's interesting, because the more you know him, I'm sure, the more mysterious he becomes, and yet the more revealed he becomes. It's that kind of oh, wow, now I know a lot more than I ever have, and yet God is more beautiful, majestic, transcendent than I ever imagined. But I can see how that roots your faith a lot deeper. You you had um, some other thoughts, too, about even like being born again. I found that part of the book really fascinating, that being born again, uh, to us, really, I mean, that's a very typical evangelical thing to talk about, and yet it has a particular Jewish culture that changes things and makes the story of Nicodemus pop. Oh man, that's one that that is one of my uh favorite encounters with Jesus where Nicodemus comes at night, right? Yeah. And John uses that word night as a picture between good and evil. Light and mm-hmm. darkness is good and evil. So he comes at night, he meets with Jesus this rabbi, and the question he asks is, how can a man Jesus says you must be born again? But notice what Nicodemus says. He doesn't say, how can a man be born again? He asks, how can a man be born again when he's old? Yeah. Okay, because here's the thing. In the Jewish in the Jewish culture, and you can study this through the Mishnah, which is a commentary in the Old Testament, there were six ways that a, Jew, Jew, that a person could be born again. Six ways. Four of which Nicodemus qualified for, two of which he didn't. Okay? The two of which he didn't would have been a Gentile. When a Gentile converts to, to become a believer, kind of a God-fearer, that, would, that was this idea of being born again. And the second one was when you were crowned a king. Wow. Nicodemus is not crowned. We don't know about that, whatever. But he did qualify for four. The first one was when you were going through your bar mitzvah, you know, hmm. when they go, the 13-year-old process whereby you become a man. That's a, uh, they would say you're born again. They would say you're born again. Another one was when you become a Pharisee. We know he was a Pharisee because he was a synagogue leader. Uh, another one was when he became the synagogue leader. Okay. Mm. Now here's the thing. What he's asking Jesus is not, can a man be born again? Because he's got those covered. What he's asking, I think is how can a man be born again when he's old? And what he's asking is Jesus, I'm a senior citizen in a sense. I'm an old man. Yeah. There's no way I can be born again. I have to go back and start over. And Jesus says, you missed the point. This is not a physical rebirth. And that's why, notice what Jesus says, you must be born of water and of spirit, right? And, then, and here's just the thing, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but here's one of the things that's been fascinating to me, Carrie, just in Christendom. We have focused so much on the born again experience that we have made salvation the goal and baptism the finish line. Right. Okay? Which, which, praise God for baptism, praise God for conversion. But let's be honest, baptism is not the finish line, it's the starting line. Exactly. That's when the true work begins of, of being a disciple who makes disciples and maturity in the faith. And so what I tell people is, and if your listeners get nothing else uh, today, I, I want them to get this, because this has been the passion of my life recently. We're not just saved from something as Christians, we're actually saved for something. And if we don't help people see what they're saved for, I think, one, we cripple and paralyze them. 
But two, we miss out on this wonderful partnership in ministry where we as pastors and leaders get to partner with people to do what God's called them to do. Hmm. I got to ask you this. Um, you know, a lot of us who have been around a little bit, we're familiar with Rob Bell when he was at Mars Hill and then sort of his teacher, Ray Vanderlaan. Um, if you've ever been to follow the rabbi, I don't know whether that site's still active or not, but there's some really interesting things that's in a similar thread. Is your teaching or your learning similar to that? Is it different from that? Any any comments on that? Yeah, I, I, I know I've heard Ray in person. Uh, mm-hmm. I love a lot of the stuff Ray does. In fact, you know, there's a lot of streams that make up this river of Hebraic roots, Jewish renewal. Ray would be one of those guys. I mean, here's just yeah. a guy who's given himself to that. Here's the caution I, I tell people, and not, not with Ray, but just in general, is when you read a lot of these things and you study a lot of these insights, you have to read with what Dwight used to tell me, Dwight Pryor used to say, you have to eat the fish and spit out the bones. Right. Because there's, and you know that, I mean, with anything, we read this way. You can't take everything at face value. So what I say at the beginning of the book is this, don't just take what I'm saying as doctrine and dogma. Go compare it to scripture. Study history for yourself. Look into the culture of Jesus. Because if we're teaching something, because guys get off. I mean, you know, I mean, even Rob Bell. I mean, I don't know Rob personally, but but Sally, there are even times when you get down these roads and you start questioning the Bible and the inerrancy mm-hmm. of scripture and the infallibility. Listen, if you're studying something and it's not driving you to a deeper appreciation and understanding of the word of God, then I would question whether it is dogmatic, if it is orthodox. Why? Because we always go back to the word. The word is informing everything we do. And these insights from culture and context and history, they just support, they don't supplant the word in a sense. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, this is true, whether you've ever cracked Jewish culture for 10 minutes or not, but pastors get accused all the time of trying to answer questions nobody is asking. And I always think about that when I'm planning a sermon series or, or whatever. I think that's just generally true. Um, to what extent, when, how do you avoid that trap when you're looking at the historical cultural context of Jesus? How do you make sure you're not just answering questions nobody's asking? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, I'm an expository preacher, which, you know, right. influenced by David Platt. And so basically what I do week in and week out is, and let me just tell you, this takes so much pressure off of me as a pastor. I, I don't have to sit and think and create of all these things I think our people need. I just preach through the word. I mean, and you know this, when you let the word do the work and you let the word be the authority, what I'm trying to do on Sunday morning uh, at Long Hollow is I'm trying to get up like a prophet of the Old Testament, although I'm not a prophet, but prophetically I'm speaking the word. And I'm trying to put a megaphone to the Bible so that I can say to the people, thus says the Lord. Yeah. Now, the challenge with that, I mean, you know, I mean, you're a preacher. The challenge with that is we have to know what the Lord is saying yeah. in order to say, thus says the Lord. And what I found is when, when you when you let the word preach, and, and yes, you have to apply the word of God, because this is another thing I think so many pastors miss at times, is that we, we, we describe the glories of God. We talk about the splendor of God. We talk about insights from the word, but we never apply the Bible to our people. And so what happens is, and here's what I realized, most of our people in the church pew, because of life and business and busyness, and you would agree, Carrie, they can't connect the dots, right? Yeah. Even with life, let alone the text and the historical background. 
Exactly. They can't, they get too many things influencing and informing them. So it's our job as the pastor. So here's what I ask every sermon I preach. I ask these two questions every week. So what? And now what? Yeah. Here's what I've been doing. This is just a little insight I've been doing recently. And I've been toying with this. I'll preach the message and I'll apply throughout, but I will sing the closing song, just kind of a benediction closing song, just kind of, you know, worship God encapsulate what we just said. And right before we leave, I come back up and I say, just in two to three minutes, one to two minutes, I say, here's an action step so that you can put into action what you just heard. So last week, uh, two weeks ago, I talked about living in community and being in community in Second Timothy. And so I challenge our church. This week, I want you to, if you haven't been already, join a life group. And if you haven't started and are not leading a D group, start a D group, which is the discipleship group. Mm-hmm. God bless you. See you next week. So what it does is it connects that text because here, here's the thing. When people don't know what to do, they don't do anything at all. <laughs> so true. I mean, think about that. I mean, that's yeah. the reality. And most of our people don't know what to do. Yeah. I haven't got a clue. No. So that's, I think that's one of our jobs as shepherds, uh, is that we're trying to lead them and say, Hey, here, here's, here's a way, one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways to apply this to your life. No, I think that's very fair. Now, your sources, favorite sources. I mean, obviously, you've studied this for a decade or more, uh, and you probably got dozens, if not hundreds, of sources. But if somebody wants to get started, your book is called The Forgotten Jesus. It's a great introduction into this. Um, what are some other sources that you know people could take a look at to get them reliably moving in this direction so that even the text pops? Yeah, that's great. People ask me all the time, what, because I, I, I've been preaching on this for a decade and people yeah. come up to me, Hey, what is a good source? What's a good book that really motivated me to write the book. But in the back of the book, I have some of the sources that influence me. Obviously Ray Vanderlaan, follow the rabbi still available. The, the, the man who really invested in me and I dedicate the book to is Dr. Dwight Pryor. And his website is jcstudies.org, the Jew, Judaic Christian studies. That's another one. And then the final one is First Fruits of Zion. This is a uh, Messianic Jewish ministry, friends of mine. I know these folks well, and uh, they just have a lot of resources. I mean, their their series on uh, the Messiah and Chronicles of the Messiah carry just through the Gospels is gold. And then a final mm-hmm. one is Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Yeah, uh, okay. he's out of you know Arnold. He's out of uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, I've just been invested and impacted by him. His book series on the Messiah is just amazing. So. Okay, well, we'll link to those three or four resources in the show notes. And then, yeah, at the back of your book, you've got a three-page bibliography, but it's nice to find, you know, the top two or three are a good place to get started. That's excellent. So how would you say, as we kind of wrap up, how would you say this has most impacted you personally, discovering the Jewishness of Jesus? Let's, let's do that in two parts. Number one is a preacher. Number two is a person. Yeah. Well, as a person, I would say I've always learned to to be a leader. I have to be a learner and I have to remain a lifelong learner. I tell our boys this. I've got two boys, nine and seven. And I say, if you want to stay and you want to lead, you need to read and you need to be a lifelong learner. Well, that makes perfect sense because the word disciple in Greek is learner. Right. The word disciple, this is an interesting study I did. The word disciple is actually, uh, Matthias, uh, is actually from the root word mathematics. Did you know oh, this? I didn't know that. So math- Mathetaeus is from the root word mathematics, and mathematics just screams discipline. 
just screams uh, d- d- uh, learning and, and, and growing. So this idea of being a lifelong learner. So I would say just this passion and insatiable desire. One of the things, Carrie, I've tried not to do. I got saved at 20, 25, uh, 26 years old, actually. I have never gotten over being saved. Mm, that's wonderful. Listen, man, when I read the New Testament, I read about a man named Paul who to the day he died in 2 Timothy, he never got over being saved. And I don't want that ever to be said about me. So I try to stay fresh and relevant just, just with my relationship with the Lord. I have a, I have a regular quiet time. I, I guard that in the morning. I spend time in the word. And I do that because I need to be challenged and encouraged. And, and, then, I, and then I invest in guys to do the same. And then as a preacher, I would say it's really it, – here's my goal as a preacher. I want to preach as a pastor. And I don't want people coming up every week saying, man, I've never seen that before. I don't know how you got there. That's the, that's a neat idea. Yeah. I want people to, to, to leave and say, wow, I never knew that connection from the old and new. I never knew. Here's a, here's a neat one. I never knew that when the woman with the discharge of blood for 12 years came out and grabbed the hem of Jesus's garment. Remember this? Yeah. And Jesus said, who touched me? My power went out of me. I didn't know that word him or corner is the is the Hebrew word kanath, which was the promise of Malachi three when he said the Messiah will come with healing in his kanath or uh. corner or wings. So when I preach that message, peop, I want people to leave and say, wow, the Bible does connect. The Old and New Testament goes together. This isn't some disconnected book with random thoughts. This is one book written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years, 66 different books, three different continents, three different languages, and it's all talking about the same Messiah. The old points to the new of his coming, the new points back to the old of his arrival, and it all makes sense. And man, when I get excited, people say, I want to get in the Word more. Pastor into the Word gets into me. So I can see that. It creates a hunger. It create. It doesn't make, you know, you're not dazzling people with like, wow, I'll never be that smart, you're like, hey, you can do this and you should, you know, read God's word for yourself, which I think we all want. Robbie, this has been great. Uh, Where can people find you online and uh, tell us a little bit more about the book and where to get it? Yeah. So uh, they can follow me on Twitter, Argality, obviously on Twitter. They can uh, they can find us online at longhollow.com. Longhollow.com is the website. And uh, my sermons are on there every week. And then they can find the book just at any uh, bookstore uh, or online. They could find it, The Forgotten Jesus, How Western Christians Should Follow a Jewish or Eastern Rabbi is the subtitle. Amazing. Robbie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, brother. It's been a joy. Well, welcome, Evan. It is so good to have you. And uh, I got to ask you, we got to start here. How does a Jewish rabbi become interested in helping Christians understand Jesus Jewish context? Well, it all started when I was a rabbi uh, in downtown Chicago, and we lived, uh, or the synagogue was down the street from a large church. And we partnered with the church. We actually used their space for the holidays because we Mm. couldn't fit enough people in our synagogue. And um, we made some friendships there, and they asked me to teach a class uh, about uh, Jewish holidays. So I said, sure. And the only time we could we could get a class. The timing was difficult was Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. And this was in February in Chicago. So I'm thinking, <laughs> nobody's going to come to this class. 
Uh, and by the end of it, we had 80 people in the class. Wow. Uh, and it was just, I saw that there was tremendous interest. Uh, and the interest was, some of it was because people had relatives in their family who were Jewish, but a lot of other people understood that the uh, that Jesus was Jewish and that the t- teachings that he cites from the Old Testament were were part of his Jewish background and identity, and people wanted to learn more about that. So it really started out of people's interests, and then it just grew and grew. Hmm. That's fascinating. And, and you've got an interest, obviously, in some of the Christian story as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I see in many ways there's so much interesting dialogue from a religious point of view that's happening in the first century of the common era. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, we can look at Jesus as a Jewish teacher. Now, for Jews, um, Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not God. But Jesus is a great teacher of Judaism. And many Jesus is understood as a rabbi. And so looking at those teachings enriches my own spirituality. As well, and, and in many ways, reading the Gospels uh, and reading parts of the letters uh, uh, of Paul, there's a lot of Jewish insight in those letters as well. It's, 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 it's a different kind of reading of the text, um, but it's, it's quite enriching in that way. And it deepens my own faith. And I think, you know, what I think what I can offer is a, is a way to deepen other people's faith by introducing some of the ways that Jews in the first century would have heard Jesus's teachings. Hmm. So let's talk about your context a little bit. Uh, there's yeah. many different strains of uh, Judaism. And yes. so you're a reform rabbi, correct? Yes. Yes. So what does that mean? Just for those of us who are maybe not that familiar with the different strains of, of Judaism. Reform tends to be Judaism that is uh, most comfortable in the modern world and okay. most willing to engage with modern ideas. Uh, so reform really is born in early 19th century Germany, where Jews, uh, you know, there was so much anti-Semitism for so long. And that actually mm-hmm. is part of the reason I wrote the book, that in, in some ways, my Jewish audience, for some Jews, any mention of Jesus makes them feel uncomfortable because right. of the history of anti-Semitism. And uh, in 19th century Germany, that was starting to fade. Now, of course, it had resurgences, as, as we know. Uh-huh. But, but there was a feeling that Jews are uh, leaving the ghettos and can adapt to modern life. And that's when Reform Judaism was born. And it really thrived in America because America was this new country, and Canada as well, uh, mm-hmm. America this new country where the old traditions didn't matter. So reform quickly became the largest movement in America. And that's the tradition I grew up in and and that I'm most comfortable in. And we're also the most uh, open to interfaith conversations and dialogue. So very few non-reform synagogues would ever have a service in a church, whereas that was part of what we did. Um, when I was uh, when I was a rabbi at my first synagogue, so um, it actually being a reform rabbi lent um, this this mission, this part of my life. Um, it gave me the opportunity to pursue it. Hmm. So sometimes when you go into a suburban Christian church in Chicago or Toronto or Atlanta or California or you know L.A. wherever New York even, um, it's almost like Jesus was born in America um, when you hear him preached. Like he exists to help you find a parking spot 
And uh, he, you know, his Jewishness is almost gone, like almost missing. Um, how does that kind of portrayal of Jesus, the way you would hear it in popular preaching, even well-known popular preaching, how does that strike you as a rabbi? I think it it, it just strikes me as as inaccurate. You know, I mm. think part of I think part of any religious life is we tend to draw things in familiar terms. So since we're living in you know Canada and America, you know in Atlanta or wherever we live, we tend to see you know Jesus or or even you know parts of American history and so forth. We we see things through our own context, and so that's normal. And I try not to you know judge it too much, but. I think we are infinitely richer when we see Jesus in that Jewish context, because yeah. a lot of things Jesus would say can make more sense. You know, we, part of the beauty of the of the Bible is that it can be read with such depth and such meaning. And I think seeing the Jewish context um, of you know the 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 great commission and the great you know love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Seeing how a first century Jew would have heard that can add layers of meaning to it. That love has, love is much more than a feeling. It's certain actions focused on those areas. So I think it it restores a, a depth to those teachings that, that, that can often be hidden if we don't see Jesus in that context. Yeah. So Jesus was definitely a rabbi in the same way that you are. That's an ancient term that continues to this day. Um, does that, I mean, the way we hear it in Christianity, we translate it often as teacher. Is that accurate? Yes, it's absolutely accurate. Uh, and, um, that, that's sort of a rabbi's main job. And the, the, the phrase rabbi, as, as you said, is, is been, that phrase has been around for a long time after starting in about 70 CE with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the mm. Romans, Rabbi became a kind of title. It became, or, or not even a title, a profession. And so there were rabbis who were leaders of the community, and it was used in a more professional sense. Before that, it was always used in the sense of teacher. But actually, the Gospel of Matthew is the first book, Jewish or non-Jewish, to 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 use the phrase the rabbis. And when he was saying really? that, he was referring, yes, to this emerging professional class who were you know, because once the temple is destroyed, there's no priesthood anymore. The the, the mm-hmm. Levites, they don't have a job. You know, they're, they're, they, they were the leaders of the community, but now the rabbis are the leaders of the community. And so, whereas Jesus kind of fit the classical definition of the rabbi's teacher, after Jesus, there are rabbis become a kind of more professional class and, and, and the official leaders of the Jewish community. Right. So in that sense, you know, Judaism went from being a temple-based movement to a synagogue-based movement. Is that correct? Absolutely. Huge transformation. And I mean, that's that's also something, it was starting to happen in Jesus's time. I mean, you know, the, the destruction of the temple accelerated a process that was already happening. The mm-hmm. temple was becoming increasingly out of touch. You know, Jesus criticizes the temple, but so do so many other Pharisees. I mean, there's so many, you know, the Pharisees arose in opposition to the temple. They were the middle class and lower middle class Jews who resented the kind of aristocratic heirs of the priests. Uh, And then the priesthood had become so corrupt, you know, it was bought and sold by Rome. And so the Pharisees were actually this kind of um, 
counter group. Um, and, and that's one of the, one of my quests with the book is to try to rehabilitate a little bit the image of the Pharisees because they're, they're, they're not as, uh, as bad as they're often caricatured in the, in the gospels. I mean, there are reasons the Pharisees are portrayed in the way they are. It has to do with the Roman government and so forth, but the, the, the Pharisees were actually very much opposed to the corruption of the temple that was happening. Which is interesting, yeah, because usually if you need a whipping boy as a preacher, you pull out the Pharisees and it's like, don't be like them. But actually, they were seen as some of the most righteous people of the day. They would be very admirable and people would go, wow, compared to everything else around us, they're pretty amazing people, right? And why do you think Jesus picked on the Pharisees? Well, because I think there were a lot of inter-Jewish battles happening at the time. Kind of like sometimes we can pick fights and say vituperous things about people who we're closest to, yeah. you know, like, and you, by the way, that happens in communities today. Mm. Um, uh, and so I think a lot of the things that Jesus says about the Pharisees are said as part of a debate amongst people who share similar values. So I, I think that, that, you know, it was part of the debate that was going on. I also think in kind of over time, this is what happened is people began to see all Jews, like Pharisees referred to all Jews, right? So, uh, so then some of the anti-Semitism that we've seen throughout history came from, you know, the way one group was depicted and sometimes inaccurately kind of portrayed as enemies, whereas they were just sort of debates um, uh, with strong language became the kind of fill in for all Jews and that accelerated anti-Semitism. Now, Jesus would have never understood it that way and neither would have no. Paul, but it became, it, it sort of became part of the institutional church later. Right. So Jesus is a rabbi. So that means teacher. He's part of a movement, but obviously a very different rabbi and a much more influential yeah. rabbi than even Hillel or others, you know, of, of that day. And I think most Christians know that, but the only access to a rabbi we really have is probably some old Rob Bell sermon from 10 years ago, you know, when he was hanging out with Ray Vanderlaan. And, uh, you know, I, I visited Follow the Rabbi, uh, which is a website. I don't even know whether it's still out there or not. But, you know, you can, you can access little streams of Judaism. Um, what does it mean for us? Like, think about exactly the scenario I'm talking about. You're talking to tens of thousands of leaders who are, you know, North American suburban, lower, upper, middle-class people who really probably will never visit Israel, and if they do, it's going to be some kind of bus tour. And uh, what does it mean that our Savior, if you're a Christian, our Savior is a rabbi? I think it, it, it means that he was teaching the Bible in a, in a Jewish way, in that, mm. that the, the depth and the in the way that he was teaching can be so much enriched by understanding that Jewish context. So if we take the Bible seriously, and if we take Jesus seriously, I think we have to take Judaism seriously. It's kind of like I once heard somebody talk about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, yeah. who I know a lot of leaders look up to. I you theologian know, in in Second World War Germany, a Christian theologian who died what two weeks ago, two weeks before uh, the the Nazi forces fell. Yeah. yeah, amazing writings. Such a hero. And if you look, if we just read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's writing without knowing that a war was going on and the larger context in which he lived, 
we would miss a lot of the depth of that writing. And I think the same is true with Jesus. If we don't understand what was happening in the first century in the Jewish context in which Jesus has lived, then we're not getting the full depth and scope and wisdom of his writings. So I think that um, pastors and leaders, um, the story that that we all tell, I mean, I'm a rabbi, but I'm telling a, a, a story about faith as well. The story is enriched when we see it in its broader context. And so there are examples, you know, the the three men who come and and um, you know announce uh, Jesus's birth. Of, you know they're often depicted as the Magi, although that you know some people don't like that translation. But the, you know, this is very this echoes the three angels who went to visit Abraham while he was waiting in the tent in Genesis chapter sixteen. Uh, uh, so I think it's sixteen. It's either sixteen or twenty one. I think. Uh, but the three wise men. It it, it we, we can see the world in which the gospel writers were, 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 were writing and that how others would have heard that message. And so it simply adds to the layers of meaning. And there's also just understanding what love means. And, and then the other part of it too, as leaders, we're responsible for the culture or, or at least shaping the culture as much as we can. And there's been such a history of anti-Semitism and I think leaders can sort of begin to bridge that divide and, and lift their followers by understanding more of the Jewishness of Jesus and how much we share. So let's start picking uh, this apart a little bit. You mentioned yeah. the parallel between the announcement of Jesus' birth or what happened at Jesus' birth with the appearance of the wise men or the magi, depending on the yeah. translation you're yeah. looking for. You had some say astrologers, uh, you know, that they right. saw the... The star in the east, and I saw that in your book. And I had actually—I've read my share of commentaries. Okay, I've, I've preached for a long time. I'd never seen the parallel to Abraham's story, and I think most people who are a little bit familiar with Abraham remember that before Abraham and Sarah became pregnant, there was an announcement, and Moses was standing at the entrance of his tent, and he's talking with God, and then there's these three visitors who he doesn't realize until later are angels, and they're like, "You're going to have a baby," and Sarah laughs. And then yeah. there's that. You didn't laugh. Yes, I did. No, you know, you know, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, I did. Okay. And then a year later, you know, I guess it's Yitzhak, Isaac, whose right. name is Laughter in, in right. Hebrew, is one of the names, Struggle or Laughter, exactly. is yes. born. And so, you know, there, there's that parallel. And I never linked up the three wise men with the three visitors. So, but you've still got to explain to me, why does that matter? Like, help, help me understand that. And listen, biblical commentators do this all the time. I mean, Moses is an archetype of Christ and so on, and he's a savior, but he's not the savior, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, if you study the, the commentaries, you're, you're used to that, but how do we, uh, how does that enrich somebody who's trying to find a parking spot in a, in a mall in suburban America? I think it, I think it, uh, deepens our experience of the Bible. At least, you know, I think when we encounter the Bible, if we simply think of it as just great stories, you know, you can find that anywhere. You can find that in Shakespeare. But when we see how how it reflects this, that God's word is continuous from the time of Abraham, through the time of Jesus, through all time, I don't know, at least to me, it it it, it adds it 
it doesn't add holiness to it because I think the holiness is already there. It just makes me appreciate it even more. Yeah. It makes me feel even more connected to the text to know how ancient these ideas are. Um, and so I think for for just an average person who, you know, wants to know, tell me what to do, tell me what to believe, and I'll take it, yeah. maybe these resonances aren't that important. But for somebody who really believes that this is the word of God and they want to experience and understand the word of God, you know, on its in in, in great depth, that knowing these echoes and parallels um, is fulfilling. And you know what? That's a good distinction because if all you're trying to get out of Christianity is a parking spot, you probably miss the point anyway, right? right. You've really or Judaism, you've missed the right. point. Um, and I think you make the point in in your book, which was kind of interesting, is are you open to the visitation of God? Are you open to that message? And I thought, you know what? That's a really good interpretation as somebody who's writing a Christmas message every year. Um, it was interesting. Let's talk about, uh, and forgive my pronunciation if I've, if I've uh, westernized it, but the Shema, the hero Israel, the, the Lord, the Lord your God is one, which is out of Deuteronomy, but also the refrain that comes up again and again in the New Testament and central, something that a Jewish Jesus would have said every day, multiple times a day? Absolutely. Three times a day is the tradition. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of the considered the the core prayer in Judaism. It's taken, you know, uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, and it's a statement of monotheism, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of the core the core idea that um, Abraham uh, uh, uncovered that God revealed to Abraham this idea that there is one God in the universe, uh, and that that God is is everywhere and everything. Mm-hmm. And certainly, Jesus would have understood that, and then Jesus would have would have would have as as a young Jewish person would have would have imbibed that message would have understood it so in the context i mean it's sort of love the lord your god with all your heart mm-hmm. mind soul and strength which is a verse again that would be very familiar to christians it's something i think about something i pray through and something i try to live out you know am i engaging my mind am i engaging my heart my soul even my body my strength I don't know whether that's even close to a Jewish interpretation, but peel back a few layers and help us see. You've got a whole chapter in your book about it. And the book is What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus. I think you have a whole chapter on the Shema. So uh, tell us about about what that means in a Jewish context. Okay. So one of the ideas I introduce in the book, and one of the things that I think has been most popular when I've spoken about this book at different churches, has been the idea of Midrash. Midrash is a Hebrew word that means to explain and to unpack. Midrash is the Jewish interpretive technique that answers certain questions that are um, not answered directly in the Bible. Uh, and so Midrash, but, but Midrash is much more than that. It's interpretation. So Midrash tries to add layers to the meaning of the text. So in the Midrash, the rabbis, who are the authors of the Midrash, say, well, what does it mean? to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. But how does that translate into direct action? And so they said, well, to love the Lord with all your heart means to uh, when to, to love God with all of our desires. You know, the baser desires, right, represented mm-hmm. by the heart like lust, and the higher desires represented by love. So everything we do should be based on love of God. So it's an interpretive layer. Now, love the Lord your God with all your soul. That means express our love in prayer. 
prayer is the language of the soul. So when we pray, we should have that love behind it. And with all your might, they interpreted to mean all your resources. So what you give, your work, all of that should express our love of God. So what 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 the rabbis often did in Midrash is take sort of grand ideas and mm-hmm. bring them to practice. And that's what they th- that's kind of what I unpack in this. So it answers oh. how how do we live? Okay, well that's good about that. So in other words, the Midrash, Jesus is is really that would all be common knowledge in that day. There would be debates among different rabbinical schools. You mentioned in the book, you mentioned Rabbi Hillel. And again, if you've been to seminary for 20 minutes, he probably came up, but I'm not clear on like, you know, there were other rabbis in Jesus' day, right? And Hillel yes. was one of was he a contemporary or did he live before Jesus or after he was or how probably did that work? Right before he, okay. They might have overlapped, but with the thing about Hillel that's that's so interesting is many of his teachings parallel those of Jesus. And this actually can help us restore Jesus to sort of this Jewish context. So, for example, there, there's a great debate in, um, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus and, and some of the disciples are gathering grains on the Sabbath. And some of the scribes are critical and say, well, what are you doing on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to be doing any work. And Jesus mm-hmm. said, actually, you're allowed to save life on the Sabbath. Pikuach nefesh is the Hebrew phrase. And we, you know, we have to eat in order to live. So this is kosher for the Sabbath to gather grains. And right. in fact, Jesus does a very rabbinic thing and cites King David. He says, King David gathered grains on the Sabbath. Uh, and so that would have been a perfectly logical argument within the Jewish community. And Hillel would have been very similar to Jesus. Hillel was often the most flexible and um, kind of open rabbi of his time. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he, he would generally try to find the permissive route uh, and, and the most life-affirming route rather than the strictest route. So that's why I say, and he was often in contrast to Shammai, who was a, a more stringent we could say legalistic rabbi. And so Jesus hmm. and Hillel have shared a lot in common. So is Jesus seen as a radical by other Jews in his day, not just ultimately by Christians? Uh, how, did, how did that work? This is such, this is a big question. And it's a bit of a, it's, it's almost an impossible question to answer sure. because we have so many different interpretations. Some would say Jesus was a political radical. You know, you can read the Lord's Prayer I, I, I've done a popular lecture at, at a whole bunch of different churches on sort of unpacking the Lord's Prayer. And you could read it as a very radical statement, like our Father who art in heaven. Not our, and that's our Father is not in Rome. We are right. not, you know, and, and then you can read other parts of it as kind of hinting at a revolution. And that's how some people saw Jesus as a spiritual, you know, rebel who is seeking to restore God's kingdom from Roman, you know, under Roman rule. Then there are other interpretations say, no, Jesus wasn't all that interested in politics. Jesus was more interested in spiritual life. Um, so I think that the, the range of interpretations is, is vast. And part of that just reflects the culture in which we live, right? If, mm-hmm. if we're in a more radical culture, people will look at the radicalness of Jesus. If we're in a more, um, you know, conservative culture, people will de-emphasize that. So it's hard, it's hard to unpack what's really right. You help Christians take uh, another look at the calling of the disciples, which is, you know, something we'll preach on quite a bit. It's in every gospel. And, 
you know, some of that is like Peter, James, and John are standing by the side of the lake, and next thing you know, they're following Jesus, and it seems radical. Uh, but there's culture and context around that. Take us, take us through, and even Matthew at the tax collector's booth, right? Uh, yes. Take us, take us through what is so surprising, or what we might miss otherwise if we don't understand the context behind that. Yes. Well, as we talked about earlier, Jesus is a rabbi, and that means a teacher. But it's not just a teacher as in you come to the classroom and I'll teach you something and then you go home. Right. In those days, a real teacher taught everything. It was a way of life. And so um, students, disciples, the Hebrew phrase would be Talmidim. Talmid is a student, but really a student mm-hmm. of everything. The they would be attracted to a rabbi who would then lead them from town to town and they would teach and and stay in people's homes. And this was part of how Jewish life in the first century operated. So I think understanding that, you know, the the, the disciples were learning their entire way of life from Jesus and were, were part of it was sort of just instant following. So in some of it was imp- uh, imparting information, but part of it was also learning from the way Jesus lived. Um, right. And that, so for, for leaders, I think it comes back to true, what someone, someone once told me, you know, the, 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 the most powerful sermon is the one you give with your own life, right? Mm. How do we, how do we live? How do we lead? Are we truly cultivating disciples? And to me, that's, it, it's, it's powerful to understand that that's, that's how Jesus led. That's how uh, rabbis before him led, and it's really the best way to lead. Hmm. So was that typical for rabbis in that day? Would they, would they, you know, live 24-7 with their disciples, or was Jesus unique in that, or he was just following the established patterns of, of uh, you know, rabbinical life? Yeah, it's an interesting—it differs. They definitely did live very— in tight quarters and people live together. There's kind of a joke from the Talmud. The Talmud usually doesn't have too many jokes, but this might be a joke (laughs) or it might be serious. But there's a story about how a student hid under his rabbi's bed. And and when the rabbi came home and, and the rabbi was with his spouse, he discovered the student under his bed and he said, what are you doing here? And the student says, well, you know, I'm supposed to learn everything from you. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, there definitely is a, um, there is a feeling that we are to learn all of life from our teachers. Uh, so I, I, I think Jesus was probably unique in, in, in the, in the absolute depth of it, but the, the idea of people following their rabbi around, yeah. uh, was, was part of the culture. Were many rabbis married at the time? Like Jesus wasn't, but were many rabbis married? Yes, it was common. You know, this, this is actually one of the interesting differences that emerged between Judaism and early Christianity um, is, uh, yeah, a rabbi were, were typically married and they typically had lots of children. Um, it was, and, and that actually has gone on throughout history. Uh, so, um, but then again, you know, there, there were, there were groups that were attracted to a more ascetic lifestyle. You know, the, the people that went to the Dead Sea caves, mm-hmm. um, they did not have children. Uh, they were former priests who who were those the Essenes or or yes the Essenes. That's yeah. why there was a theory a long time ago that Jesus was came you know part of the you know uh, that Jesus had an Essene background or John, John the Baptist yeah. often yeah yes. was a scene. That's right. So they did not have children, but the Pharisees who later became the rabbis that was part of their uh, way of life. Okay, fascinating. Yeah. 
So yeah. Lord's Prayer, you talk about the Lord's Prayer as well. And again, that's something that, uh, man, that's been preached on. Uh, Christians have prayed it for thousands of years. But um, tell us about the context behind that. Well, it, it started, that this kind. so I've done a lot of interfaith weddings, you know, where, mm-hmm. where I'm with a priest or a minister. And um, in an interfaith wedding, it's quite common for people to do the Lord's Prayer, uh, for people to, to say it. And I began to see how people who perhaps were not that connected to Christian life still knew the Lord's Prayer. In some ways, Mm. like many Jews who may not come to synagogue very often, they'll know the Shema. And so I saw its power. And then it kind of, it was random. I I read a book uh, uh, by a Christian author on the Lord's Prayer. And I began to see that many of the, just the language and the structure was similar to a Jewish prayer known as the Kaddish. And the interesting thing is the Lord's Prayer does not mention Jesus. So in many ways, that's partly what made it comfortable in an interfaith wedding, that some of the Jewish guests would not feel that that it was, you know, it wasn't making them uncomfortable. Because as I said earlier, some Jews would would, would feel like when, when people talk about Jesus, they often feel echoes of anti-Semitism. Now, I think that's wrong, and that's part of the reason I wrote this book. But the Lord's Prayer is could be recited in a synagogue without any problem. So I started to explore it and I saw this intersection with the Kaddish prayer and then realized, you know, there's a lot of Judaism happening in this prayer. Um, And I think that that, again, that adds so many layers to it that it's not just, you know, when you just say the words automatically, okay, that's comforting. But if you really know what they mean and know even more about what they mean, it's even more powerful. Hmm. So um, you also talk a little bit about, um, in another book, the four cups of the Passover. So uh-huh. we, we see that. I mean, a lot of us think there's one cup, and then if you read it more carefully, it's clear that there's two, there's before and after, but you say there's four cups. How does that uh, go into some of that background and, and help us understand how that can connect the dots for some Christians? Yeah. Well, four, the number four is a big theme in the Passover Seder. And so, of course, Passover comes out of the Exodus where, you know, the Jewish people didn't have enough time to let bread rise and so had to eat matzah. This right. is all in the book of Exodus. And the number four comes from 400 years of slavery. Hmm. There were four times, I think it's in Exodus 6, where the, the promise of, uh, of redemption from Egypt is mentioned four times. Uh, there are... Uh, four matriarchs, uh, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. And so four cups of wine came to be a, a core part of the Passover Seder. There are four questions that you're supposed to ask. This is taken out of the Talmud. There are four types of students. So four became this central number. Um, and that's how we got to four four cups of wine. Hmm. And so how how does that, that gives us a really interesting context, but um, Jesus would be, how, how does that inform what a, a Christian needs to know about, about God? Well, I think the Passover itself is, is some, tells us something about Jesus and about, um, what he would have been preaching and what his followers would have heard the last night of his life. He was mm. preaching the story of redemption and Redemption for Jews is tied up with the exodus from Egypt. 
and for Christians is tied up in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I see a direct parallel between the Christian message of of redemption and the Jewish message of Passover. Yes. And that's kind of what I wanted to pull out um, in the book. And that also occurred to me when I was uh, speaking at a church and and um, and they were singing a hymn called, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Oh yeah, thought, it's an old it was, spiritual. It was, and I had never heard it before. So I asked the, I asked the pastor, I said, so what's the meaning of this, of this uh, hymn? And she actually said to me, she said, she gave me a more existentialist interpretation. She said, well, it's each of us is supposed to ask ourselves what we would have done if we were there when Jesus was mm. crucified. And I thought oh, that's a nice interpretation. And then I thought, well, that's what's supposed to happen at Passover. Yeah. At Passover, we are meant to imagine that we ourselves were slaves in Egypt and God freed us and how much faith we would have at that moment if we saw God's redemptive power. And I think that's that that's the parallel between Passover and the Exodus. Yeah, because your children won't remember, right? And so you tell them the story. And and for Christians, it connects a lot of dots too, because you know you hear phrases like the blood of the lamb, and you're like, what, what, what? And that's Revelation language, and it's New Testament language, but it also goes back to the Passover lamb, right? Yes. And how the Passover. Uh, so it connects. It it really presents the what Christians would say is the ultimate fulfillment of God's history, which is, you know, and, and God's story of redemption. So as, as we kind of uh, wrap up, talk to the average Western church leader who knows little to nothing of Jewish history, culture, or background. What are two or three things he or she should familiarize uh, with themselves quickly? I think the first thing is to under, is, is to know that when we say Jesus was Jewish, we mean that in the first century, there were a variety of Jewish teachings uh, and that Jesus was explaining, uh, elaborating on and reflecting those teachings. And knowing that can deepen the way we read and understand the Bible. So for pastors that I have I have worked with and, and, and other Christian leaders, the the depth that a Jewish view from Midrash um can add to the Bible is meaningful. So we can interpret the Bible in a deeper way. Second thing is to begin to see the closer parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, some Christians really think of the Old Testament as this God of vengeance and God of law versus the New Testament God of love and God of mercy. And what I try to do in the book is, is to say, you know, that's not exactly accurate. There's lots of, of, of depictions of the God of love in the Old Testament, and to try to, to deepen that appreciation of the Old Testament and its sort of continuity and connection with the new. Um, and the third, I, I hope that this can rehabilitate the, the image of the Pharisees a little bit and to see <laughs> yeah. that, that what was happening in these debates was more interfamily inter debates. And ultimately, this is what I've, I've, I've talked about you know, in, 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 in churches and synagogues many times is both Jesus, Paul, Akiba, and Hillel, who were two famous rabbis, they were struggling. What does it mean to be a good Jew in the first century? And Paul especially said to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So they, they didn't see themselves as a disconnect from Judaism. Right. Uh, that came later. And restoring that feeling of connection I think in today's world is where we live and people of so many different faiths and building those ties closer is enriching for all of us. 
I think that's a really good point too. I mean, when you think about the, what, and, and, you know, Christians today aren't alone. There were whole movements in the early days of, you know, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, where there were people who said the God of the old Testament is not even the same God as the God of the new Testament, right? They're totally different movements and, and, you know, uh, history worked that one out, but a lot of Christians are very uncomfortable with the old Testament, but Jesus said, I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill the law And you're right, there are very, very close parallels, starting with, you know, even the three visitors and the three wise men, right down to Jesus. The the Last Supper was the Passover Supper. It wasn't right. like, hey, we stopped at McDonald's on the way to the cross. You know, that that's that's like that's and sometimes we forget that this is this is a very Jewish um ceremony that Jesus was immersed in and he is fulfilling rather than abolishing. And I think it can add to a, a much deeper reading. So uh, well, Evan, I know people are going to want to find you online. Where where can they find you? The best way is rabbi, R-A-B-B-I dot M-E, rabbi dot me. That is or, a cool domain. <laughs> you've <laughs> got rabbi dot me. gave to me. I searched for it. So rabbi dot M-E or rabbi moffick dot com. Uh, and of course, all the books are on Amazon, but um, yeah. the, the website is the best way and would love to be in touch and connect with anybody. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Evan. Thanks, Gary. Well, you are definitely going to want to learn more about that. You can go to the show notes at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 172, or just go to lead like never before and search out, um, the Jewishness of Jesus or Rabbi Evan Moffick or whatever. Use a little search window, Robbie Gallaty. You'll find it all there, including all the links to what we've talked about so far in the show. And remember the high impact leader course is open. Wouldn't it be wonderful if 2018 was a year in which you actually got to give your family your best, not your leftovers, where you went to a new level of leadership in your life. It's all about getting your life and leadership back so that you can get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. It is only open for a few days in this phase, and we have some bonuses for you. So head on over to thehighimpactleader.com while you can, because a week from now, it's going to go away. So don't wait, thehighimpactleader.com. And check out the good folks at lifeway.com slash ministry grid to claim your bonus before the end of the year and train your teams the new way, train them online. Well, we are back next week with a fresh episode. Subscribers, you'll get that automatically. You can subscribe for free anywhere you get your podcasts. And thank you to all of you who leave ratings and reviews. I read every one of them. I so appreciate you guys. This was an incredible year. And you know what? I really think 2018 is even going to be better. So we're in this together. Thanks for everything. Hope the High Impact Leader makes a difference. I hope that what we do here every week makes a difference. And I wish you the very, very best in 2018. And we'll be back on January 2nd with a fresh episode. My conversation with Craig Rochelle next time we are back. So thanks so much for listening. I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.